Hello there. I'm thrilled to be able to say that for the next few months, we have our first sponsor of the new decade. It's Team Langoustine. If you haven't heard of Team Langoustine, they offer camping at the Le Mans 24 Hours, the best race in the world. And coming up later in this episode, I'll tell you more about it. Come. Doctor, we've got a patient downstairs who claims he's a medium-sized Toyota. A medium-sized Toyota? You mean a Corolla? No, he says he's a bit larger than that. A Camry? He thinks he's a Camry? No, he's claiming to be a bit smaller than that. He says he's been out of production for almost 20 years. He says he's bigger than a Corolla, smaller than a Camry, and he's been out of production for 20 years? Oh my God! What is it, Doctor? Quarantine that patient immediately! Quarantine him? Why? What is it? This man has the Toyota Coronavirus! This is Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm Gareth. He's Zog. Hello. She's Sarah. Hello. And no Richard, unfortunately, because Richard's daughter is a little poorly. So Richard's staying at home to look after little Sniffalina. We wish them all well. Right, where are we going to start? Let's start with Formula One. It's got a one in it. It means you start there. Sarah, are you as excited about the fact that Aston Martin are coming into Formula One as I am. I'm very excited. Such a quintessential English brand yeah. coming in, even though I am Australian. The Aston Martin's a favourite car of mine. Everyone so, loves Aston Martin. Yes, should I break the news on exactly what's happening and how it's happening? Go on, go on, news bunny, do okay. your thing. <laughs> well, our F1 billionaire friend, Lawrence Stroll, has put in the grand total of £182 million, pounds, included with a few other investors, I believe. Yes, I think when I read it, it was a package yes. of sort of £500 million or so. Consortium. Consortium, yeah, that's a good word. And he's going to become the new chairman of Aston Martin and Racing Point will, in 2021, become the Aston Martin F1 team. Pow-pow! Boom, Shanker. This isn't the first time Aston Martin have been in Formula 1. I mean, no, they're already there at the moment with Red Bull, but they were there as a team properly in the 50s, weren't they, as well? They were, yeah. But having Aston Martin as a full-on team again, it sort of feels right in a way that having Aston Martin as a kind of junior brand within Red Bull seemed a little bit awkward to me. Yeah, yeah. especially as they've got Honda this engines. Makes more sense. It was a bit weird, yeah, wasn't exactly. it? Yeah. Yeah. Aston Martin is an incredible brand. I mean, Love if, you, it. if you're talking about worldwide recognition for any car brand, Aston Martin is got to be one of your top three, along with Mercedes and Ferrari. Aston Martin are already in Formula One via Red Bull as sponsors. No more than that, although it does work the other way because Aston Martin becoming sponsors of the Red Bull Formula One team means that they have access to Adrian Newey, who's designed the Valkyrie, which is the hypercar which will be racing at Le Mans next year, next season. What, so do you think Adrian Newey might be poached over to Racing Point? Wow! So, so, so effectively, that would be, anyway, the other that thing that I didn't say is that Racing Point will now be renamed the Aston Martin team in yeah. 2021. Yeah. So it'll take effect in 2021. So yeah. it'll be an Aston Martin racing team. And, and this think, is our Force India racing point and now it's going to be Aston Martin. Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, that to me looks good for racing point. That looks to me like a good way for the team to move on in the next few years. They're going to have an association with a major manufacturer and they're going to have continuity of, you know, a good deal of money coming. I mean, I suppose we don't actually know whether Stroll, whether he might be supporting the team in other ways other than through Aston Martin. Mm. But then again, there's a cost cap coming into the sport in any case. So he might not have to dig any deeper into his pockets than he already has done to buy into Aston Martin. Fair play to Lawrence Stroll. I keep wanting to call him Lance. It's Lawrence. Fancy that. Fancy naming your son with a name almost identical to you. Well, is that a narcissistic thing to do? Or well, actually, no, a lot of people do As my son Garth said to me the other day, Dad, <laughs> you'd never do that. Yeah, right. No, the question is, is he spending his money in the right way? And I think yes, because Racing Point are getting a brand new wind tunnel, I believe, at their Silverstone facility, which is 
smart move. That's a great way to spend your money. He's also invested it in a brand which will give a team who have struggled for an identity, a proper identity. I mean, if you think about their history... Well, and, and a name that people are going to have yeah. a lot less trouble remembering and getting off their tongue. You know? And which is good for Formula One, because Formula yeah. One needs to have tier one names. It needs Ferrari, it needs Aston Martin. It could probably do with Jaguar or Lamborghini or Bentley. She was, I'm I, guessing I, I mean, I do, although to play devil's advocate, I'm not entirely convinced that you need more than two big manufacturers in the sport. The sport doesn't suffer if it has, say, just Mercedes, Ferrari and Renault in as manufacturers. I think it's better if it has Aston Martin in as well and you hope that there's going to be some continuity there. What you don't want to see is a manufacturer coming in and then dropping their commitment after a couple of years. Mm. But given Lawrence Stroll's history with his involvement with the sport... And deep pockets. And deep pockets. I think that's unlikely. I think you know, this, is, you know, this looks like a very good thing for the sport, for I Racing so. Point. And I think probably for Mercedes because doesn't this mean that Mercedes is going to have more of a B team to support their efforts once that change happens? Is that because they have Mercedes engines? Well, they yeah. will be using yeah. Mercedes yeah. engines. But right. so and do Williams. Got, and they've got, and they've got the, yeah, but the thing with Aston Martin slash Racing Point as opposed to Williams, is that for Racing Point, Aston Martin, you've got a relationship with the road cars as well. Yeah. The Aston Martin road cars have Mercedes engines. Indeed. And so Mercedes are going to be much more invested in the idea of working with that team, working with that brand. And there's nothing to stop them. And this is a model that's working quite well for Ferrari. Because if you think Ferrari have got strong commercial connections to Alfa Romeo in road cars and now in Formula One, and also the Haas team. The Haas team are in many ways a sort of Ferrari B team. So this is a model which has been trying to be pushed through. Do you remember, oh gosh, when was this? Late 90s when Eddie Jordan was running the Jordan Formula One team, who hilariously are now the Racing Point slash Aston Martin team. He wanted Jordan to become a B team for McLaren or Mercedes McLaren, if I remember. He was trying to get hold of Mercedes engines and he was trying to do a deal with McLaren where he could run last year's McLaren chassis. But the FAA rules under Max Mosley at the time wouldn't allow that. And so what we're seeing now is, if you like, finance forcing this situation where it's almost unstoppable now because the model is already preset thanks to us and Alfa Romeo's relationship with Ferrari. Mercedes almost certainly have to do the same. You have a benefit in terms of maybe driver development and being able to try out drivers in your junior team. On which note, one question that arises is what this means for Lance Stroll and the future well, of his seat. Because a safe seat for a long time, I suppose. But does he? No, I, th- <laughs> I think this makes his seat less secure. That's an interesting Let point. Let me put this to you. If you are... Son if of the owner of Yeah, if you're the son of the owner of no, if you're the son of the owner of an F1 team, yeah, that makes you pretty safe in well, your seat. Rather. However, yeah, but this is the thing. But once Racing Point becomes Aston Martin and it's associated with a major car brand, rather than being, you know, to put it unkindly, Daddy's the plaything of yeah, yeah. a billionaire, yeah, yeah. you have to be more accountable to shareholders. You have to be more concerned about your um, your PR and your performance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think it makes Lance Stroll's seat less secure, not more secure. Interesting. So can I also just say, I was reading up on this also, is that... One of the reasons why Aston Martin got themselves into trouble is that they started a new factory in South Wales to make DB the DBX uh, sports yeah, car. Yeah, I've yeah, been yeah. there. Yeah, since Athens. Yeah, we, so I made a program there. So they just put a whole lot of money in there, and so that's what's yeah, yeah. got yes. stuck. Yeah. Well, this is part of the plan by the head of Aston Martin, Dr. Andy. Palmer, what he calls his second century plan. You know, Aston Martin was 100 years old when he took over and he put a plan in place for their second century, which included making SUVs, diversifying to two factories rather than the one at Gaydon. And the Welsh government made them an offer they couldn't refuse with, well, not so recent cuts in defence spending. There were lots of military... Thank you, Finn. Thank you. There are lots of military buildings going empty 
And in St. Athan in South Wales, not only is there a whole range of huge buildings at a former RAF base, but also a skill set of people in the neighbourhood who are very good working with high-tech engineering, the sort of thing that you do in the RAF. And these are people who are ideal for subtle retraining to allow them to become automotive engineers. So, yeah, absolutely, Aston Martin going to build in Wales. And I think I've said this on the programme before. Historically, all Aston Martins, if you open the bonnet, there's a union flag and it says Made in England by Aston Martin. Mm. But any of the DBX built in St. Athen will have the Welsh dragon. It will say Built in Wales by Aston Martin, which That's is kind of cool if well, you're Welsh. Yeah, I, I like that. Like I like to consider Aston Martin Welsh the most English of brands. You could argue, couldn't you, with Bond? Yeah, although Bond's Englishness is an interesting thing because Bond is, of course, also Scottish. You think of he's, you know, you, what the name Bond? You can say that he's, you know, the quintessential English spy, but he's not. He's uh, he was educated in Scotland, Skyfall in Scotland, yeah. yeah. He's, and Connery is yeah, he's a Scot, yeah. And Piers Brosnan was an Irish American, wasn't he? I think. Yeah. And yeah, Timothy Dalton yeah, yeah. was a Welshman. Yeah. And, yeah. and there was an Australian Bond, Lazenby. So, yes, Bond is international. Those are the actors. He's a, he's a mixture of, of yeah. various, you know, Anglo Saxon, yeah. you know, Anglo Celtic, British. Yeah. British yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think we love all of those different, yeah. you know, strands of Bond differently, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm a yeah. Bond fan. Do you like the Bonds? Which will be, oh, actually, I've got a bit of a soft Lazenby action. You know, Honor Majesty's Secret Service is one of my. Favourite really? Bond absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think, I think you know, Lazenby is rather underrated there. You know, actually, no, we're going to have to cut this short. Cause <laughs> we, we could go on for a long time about Bond. But, uh, he wore a kilt that made him cool. Also, in OHMS, was the dreadful scene with the snow clearer that sliced up the people who were chasing Bond. Wasn't I it? think it's yeah. the most moving of the Bond films. The end. I think, yeah, yeah, oh, no, oh, absolutely. It's, uh, the end of that film, the sli- Sarah. The slice, it's a real weepy. The, the slice, what, sorry? Yeah, well, there's a scene in yeah, a Bond movie where there's a snow clearing device. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and the guys who were chasing yeah, Bond get caught yeah, in it yeah. and spurted yeah. out yeah. red blood squirting so out. I saw a trailer for, you mentioned. A Time to Die, yeah, Sarah. I saw mm. the trailer for it the other day. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a cracker. We've gone slightly off topic. Slightly talking about yeah. Bond. Only slightly, because we will talk about Bond. It's a mystery, but that's Austin Powers, isn't it? It's the same yeah, thing, yeah. basically. But he's, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, he's James Bond in a comedy And now we are really... Um, but Aston Martin, you're right, as part of their ambitious plan spent an absolute fortune on moving into this new facility. And also, they floated on the stock exchange, didn't they? And their value has dropped recently, and that's what's allowed Lawrence Stroll to buy such a large stake in the firm. But, apparently, Lawrence Stroll's skill is buying up brands who are struggling and really making them work. What's the Polo brand he owns? uh, Tommy Hilfiger. Tommy Hilfiger. Ralph Lauren was... uh, Ralph Lauren? No, no, no. uh, Polo by Ralph Lauren. I don't know. No, uh, no, 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 it's Tommy Hilfiger. Is it Tommy Hilfiger? I know he owns some high street brand, some very famous designer brand. Well, uh, I know he's made a success of that that was struggling. But that's the trick, isn't it? Buy something when it's down and the money that you save owning it, investing it to make it work. So um, that's a good model. Yeah, although I guess you you have to pick the right companies, some companies, some brands that are on a downward slope. Sometimes that downward slope continues, you know. Yes. Uh, but yeah, but Aston Martin, with the brand yeah. recognition that it has internationally, yeah, that's probably a good buy. Yeah, actually, you know what? We're both right here. He invested in Pierre Cardin and also Ralph Wren. He brought Ralph Wren to Canada, but he also invested in Tommy Hilfiger there and Michael go. Kors. So cool. he's, yeah. Where, where you well, we wish from? him well because, as I was saying, that team. It's been around a long time and it's still here by the grace of, I won't say by the grace of God, but by the grace of cash. (laughs) By the grace of Lawrence Stroll. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There is God to saving Formula One teams. Before it was Racing Point, it was Force India. Before it was Force India, it was Spiker. Before it was Spiker, it was Midland. Before it was Midland, it was Jordan. You know, it's got a heritage, certainly a heritage, but it hasn't got a brand identity that has got legs. I think of all of those, Jordan lasted Jordan the longest. Was the, yeah, Jordan was, I think, you know, of all of those, you know, Jordan is clearly the one that, mm. if you were to ask contemporary F1 fans about it, you know, Jordan would be the one that has the fondest place in people's hearts and, yeah. and is the best remembered. You know, and they're the only one who actually came into it as an existing race team because Eddie Jordan was running Eddie Jordan Racing in Formula 3000 
and Formula 3 before then. They, what's the word? John Lacey. Upscale, that's right. Lacey. They matured, they graduated to Formula 1. Everyone else who's owned that team since have just been investors, many of them Canadian, or certainly two of them Canadian. Yeah, Midland was Canadian, Lawrence Stroll's Canadian. The two in the middle, Spiker, were Dutch, and Boss India were, well... Clearly Indian, okay. yeah. But we, the name. we wish him well. It's great. But I heard a very interesting thing recently. Just before the news broke that Lawrence Stroll had bought Aston Martin, was going to rebrand Racing Point as Aston Martin, I'd heard that Toto Wolff was putting together a package to help manage Mercedes' exit strategy from Formula One. Because Mercedes have achieved pretty much everything that they can, with the exception of Lewis's seventh championship and beating Schumacher's points. You know, they can only fail. In a sense, they can only go downhill from here. Yeah. You know, what, uh, and that they had a, a plan to leave Formula One in the next two years, because they're now already in Formula E, you know, they've got a foothold there. And that their exit strategy was to sell the team out to a consortium led by Toto Wolff, and largely financed by Lawrence Stroll. And it was believed this was why Lawrence Stroll was buying the Aston Martin brand, that they were going to rebrand Toto Wolff's team, which is Bricksworth and Brackley, as Aston Martin. But as it turns out, because he'd already bought that team, he's plumbing his money into his own thing. Well, in any case, the Daimler CEO was fairly clear, this was a couple of weeks ago, that they wouldn't be leaving F1. The CEO was fairly clear in denying there was any exit strategy uh, yeah, those statements aren't always entirely reliable but I believe that Interesting. Uh, I, think that, I, I don't think they're about to uh, bail uh, they're, yeah, they're not about to bail I think well let's hope not because the skill set of those people who've deservedly won those championships it would be a great shame if they weren't financed and supported in F1 anymore wouldn't it they're such a terrific team I want to see them carrying on racing in that style for a good few more years to come it would be a shame to see them leave anytime soon Gunter Haas is the first team to reveal its 2020 F1 car after a difficult 2019. How are you feeling about your prospects for the forthcoming season? Oh, f- that in the... We're going to be totally... I mean, we... The... And... Is such a... That I'm already... My... So, you know, it's all... On the what twice in the such a in my hole. Wow, I don't think I've ever heard you so optimistic. You, your, you totally. We are off to Le Mans this year, and that means you too, Sarah, doesn't it? <laughs> I know, I know. For the first time. Yeah, I'm, I'm tickled pink, very excited. You're going to have so much fun, know. girl. You'll love it. Oh, yeah. Oh, it, Might even hang around France for a couple of days, you know, after. Well, yeah, I think, yeah, why not? Isn't yeah. the French Grand Prix the week after mm, Le Mans? There you go. She could go to that if you wanted. But hey, Le Mans is the big thing. We are very excited, me particularly, as I missed it last year. I was unable to go last year. I hope you're going to Le Mans this year. And I have to say, rather excitedly, this year for the 2020 race, the final year of the LMP1s, I should say, the mighty LMP1s, Gareth Jones and Speed has got a sponsor for our Le Mans shows. <laughs> I'm so happy about this. Team Langoustine, they are. And if you don't know who Team Langoustine are, the other day I spoke to Mark Adams from Team Langoustine, who explains who they are. Team Langoustine has always been an entity that's set up by Le Mans fans for Le Mans fans. It was started in about 1989 when the original fellows went over, uh, started enjoying themselves, and then buying tickets and reselling them on for people in the following year. It then carried on to about, I think it was 2004, a guy called Andy McSwan approached the ACO and said, hey, there's a patch of land just inside the Tet Rouge corner there. 
We've got six ACO Marshall tents on there. Can we have a go at that, please? A deal was struck, and from there, Team Langstein has grown significantly to filling up 180 pitches on the site, complete with a shower block, marquee, fully serviced toilets, food, some electric hookups, security on the gates. It's a really nice, secure compound with a concrete wall around it that's right on the edge of the circuit. And this is a different experience to camping at one of the campsites outside the circuit, which can be a bit like going into, uh, I don't know, a shanty town. A bit like the Wild West, yeah. Yeah. I think we all blooded ourselves in the public campsites at Le Mans, and it is fantastic, but it gets a point where you've lost so much stuff and your dignity that, uh, <laughs> that you, you you walk past somewhere like Team Langish and you think I, I, I've got to be in there next year and it is obviously more money there's staff involved there's security but it's worth every penny because once you get you think why didn't I do this before so what would you get for your money presumably you've got to buy general entry you've got to buy a grandstand seat if you want it separately but for what you pay for you guys you get a pitch of what size and what sort of exactly facilities do you get at this Tetrouge site everybody you have to have a general entry ticket the campsite is actually in the general entry ticket area so once you have to show to even get into the circuit and then our campsite is within there so it's quite a luxury to have actually you can take a tent only pitch which is 30 square metres, or you can then come in with a vehicle and you have to have a vehicle ticket and you can get a 40 square metre pitch. You can take get up to Winnebago RV vehicle, which is 15 square metres. In there, we have about 180 pitches of mixed sizes, depending on the mix of tents and Winnebagos, etc. There's a large marquee and food, bar, fully serviced toilets and showers, as I've said before. What if you haven't got a tent of your own? Can you surprise her? Yeah, that's actually something that's come to us as an, an idea. We're looking at pre-erected tents for people because uh, having come down in previous years in totally unsuitable vehicles, we realise people don't have much room. And we have one guy potentially flying in from the States. So, yes, we are going to offer, all being well, pre-erected tents this year. Tell me exactly where this is. This is within the circuit by the corner Tetra Rouge, so it's a great viewing position, isn't it? It is fantastic. Can you see the circuit from where you're camping? Um, you can see the banking, so you can get out of your tent in the morning, Go and grab a cup of tea from our bar, walk out the front of the gates. The banking is right in front of you. Walk up the steps of the banking with your little deck chair. You can sit on the banking, watching the famous Tetrish Corner, hearing the cars roar past going down the Mozan. Directly opposite you is a massive exterior screen. So you sit there in the Sunday morning, getting the early morning sun, drinking your tea, watching the screen, Radio Le Mans in your ear, and the circuit's right in front of you. Very civilised. It's amazing, isn't it? Yes, Le Mans 2020, I can't wait. We will be there enjoying clean toilets, hot showers and the race, of course, while we're there. And if this is something that you want to do too, you can. To find out more, please go to our sponsors page on our website. So go to www.garethjones.tv forward slash Le Mans 2020. That's garethjones.tv forward slash Le Mans 2020. And we'll see you at Le Mans. When I'm not making podcasts or editing them, one of the things I do for a living is host live events. And a couple of weeks ago in North Wales, I hosted a live technology conference. You'd have loved it, Zog. You really, really would. It was called Emerging Tech Fest, and it was about new technologies and how they could be implemented in Wales, in transport, in manufacturing, and in health and other areas. And one of the buzzwords that was used a great deal by just about every one of the speakers at this conference was decarbonisation, which is a hot topic, not least of all because of Greta Thunberg making us all feel really guilty. How dare you? Well, David Attenborough is right on that. Yeah, yeah, true enough, yeah. That's a powerful combo, isn't it? David Attenborough. They've got us in an age sandwich, haven't they, those (laughs) two? We are the in-betweenies. And they're both keen on decarbonisation, aren't they? One of the interesting things about Greta Thunberg, though, I think, is that she rightly points out that we shouldn't listen to her, we should listen to the scientists. She's a very good advocate and she's a very good... uh, Spokesperson? She's a very good public figure. Yeah, a very good spokesperson. Yeah. But she's said in at least one of her speeches, you shouldn't really be listening to her, you should be listening to the scientists. 
scientists, the experts that study the subject, because they're the ones that have the best idea about what's going on, and we should be listening to them rather than listening to the loudest voices, because that's uh, that's she's dangerous. Very passionate. That's a kind of a whole other subject, you know, why she's been such a big part of the climate change story in the last 12 months. But she's a very effective public figure. I'm surprised Extinction Rebellion haven't been protesting outside of F1 races yet. And I think these moves by Ross Braun and his recent statement are perhaps going to try and allay that. Have you got the statement well, there, Sarah? Well, uh, news I bunny? Well, yeah, news bunny. Well, last year, F1, or Ross Braun, announced plans to go carbon neutral by 2030. And that's when he was considering different forms of transport, like sea freight and trains, things like that, of all their excessive motorhomes that's going around. So further to that now, he's probably dissected it down. You've got nine Grand Prix during the year where they transport motorhomes around. They're all carted around by trucks, a large fleet of trucks. The other 15 races, the F1 community, they're happy to use whatever's there when they turn up. So, for example, in Baku, they have prefabs that no one complains about. But, you know, in the nine races, they take around a huge amount of emissions with all their travelling motorhomes. The statistics, there's a total of 315 F1 trucks used by teams, Pirelli, F1 and the FIA, at the European races. So the main support series two, they account for 60 more trucks. So that represents a massive amount of diesel and mileage. But my question would be, what proportion of Formula One's carbon footprint are the motorhomes contributing? Because my gut reaction to Ross Braun saying that they need to cut back on big motorhomes is that's not the biggest part of the carbon footprint of the whole sport. Well, I mean, they you know, do fly everybody around the world, don't they? Yeah, but the biggest part, I think, is going to be is the transport of all of the equipment around the world, is the fact that you're shifting so much equipment all around, and a lot of it's air freight. A lot of it goes by sea as well, but there's a lot of air freight there, and I think it's um, it's like 40% of F1's carbon footprint is the air freight. And one stat that I did read that was quite interesting, actually this has a bearing on what you're saying about climate rebellion, Gareth, the proportion of F1's carbon footprint that is contributed by cars racing on track and testing, if you add up all of the race mileage and all of the testing mileage of all of the Formula 1 cars themselves, that's 0.7% of F1's carbon footprint. Oh, that's incredible. And let's remember the efficiency of those power units, as we must call them now, Mm -hmm. the efficiency of a Formula 1 power unit is about 50% compared to a road car, which is about 30%. Yeah, incredible. So actually, I think you can make a very, very good case that in terms of what we are doing about climate change and what we are doing in terms of decarbonising, Formula One's actually doing some very, very good things. It's made its power plants incredibly efficient. Well, there's also argument to say that the F1 calendar needs to be adjusted to suit mileage and things like that. So it's and at the moment, travel. yeah, it, it yeah. needs to be structured in a way to minimise the distance coverage. So, for example, when F1 races in Austria, Budapest is only 400 kilometres away. Yeah. So instead of heading straight there. The entire circuit travels to Silverstone yeah, yeah. and then back to Hungary, and that's a road trip of some 3,400 kilometres. Yeah. So the difference between those 375 F1 and support event trucks travelling either 400 kilometres or almost 3,500 kilometres yeah. equates to some one point. One to five million kilometres of extra diesel usage. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge, you know, mm-hmm. th- th- that's an opportunity yeah. there to just actually rearrange the calendar, see if they can be a bit more carbon neutral. And also that a lot of team members would appreciate less time spent travelling. I would agree. And having a bit more downtime in between races, spend a day or two in Budapest rather than, yeah. Why I reckon Formula One races are booked by rock and roll agents because you ask any rock and roll band you know their tours are always oh yeah we were in Plymouth last night and tomorrow we're in Glasgow then we've got to go to Norwich before we've got to be in Dublin and then we've got to be in Dover again that's rock and roll is like that but motorsport well Formula One is a bit like that peppered all over the place yeah if they could draw an efficient arc efficiency is the way to limit waste if you like and decarbonisation is all about Limiting waste, isn't it? That's right. There are many decarbonising strategies. If you if, yep. if you take a big thing like Formula One, there are all kinds of ways in which you can try and reduce the carbon footprint that that sport has, that that culture has. Yeah, you reduce the amount of overall miles travelled. You try and make sure that whatever 
mode of transport you're using is more efficient. Mm -hmm. You transport less stuff, maybe. You, yep. know, you, you know, you make things lighter. You take fewer of them around. It's, mm. uh, um, well, they're or, working on that on all fronts, aren't they? They're talking about moving some of the freight from aircraft to sea freight, which yep. is far less wasteful. They're talking about rerouting, of course, and they're talking about doing away with the motorhomes. And you're right, Sarah, to observe that the teams are perfectly happy to use what's given. You think of the Chinese race, which may or may not happen this year, thanks to coronavirus. Well, this is something we're going to come on to later. Yeah. But the Chinese circuit, the Shanghai circuit, when they built it, they built some magnificent rooms in the paddock for the teams. It was modelled on the I think it's called the Yuan Gardens in Shanghai, which are little houses on stone pillars over water right in the middle of town. They've recreated this. It's a lovely, lovely place. Now, you don't need to take a truck with you when you've got places like that. And similarly, until very recently, even Suzuka, one of the most celebrated of F1 races, simply had a stack of three layers of porter cabins for the teams. And yeah, teams perfectly happy to be there. They don't really need... Those gin so. palaces, as he I'll calls tell you them. What, though, they'd probably be very happy to be part of the movement towards helping our environment and our climate. If in that spirit, mm. they'd probably be more than happy to take a lesser motorhome on those European races. Could put a lot of people out of work, though. The people who drive the trucks and build yeah, those things. Yeah, that's yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I that, that's quite a pretty glamorous thing to work Hang on, on, you're both talking at the same time, Sarah. What? <laughs> I said there's plenty of other truck driving jobs around, surely, but then. F1 no, there won't be, no, yeah, if you're killing down on road transport. Well, off. I mean, you're going to, you know, uh, self-driving trucks are on the way to take some of those oh, jobs away. Yeah. But the number of jobs that are going to be impacted by a few F1 teams not buying and moving around in auto homes is tiny. And if that's the only argument that somebody has against that particular decarbonised strategy, that's not a very strong argument. But like I said, I would have thought that the motorhome part of it is a pretty small part of the whole transport carbon budget if you like possibly um, yes I'd say you know, so yeah it's a good bit of PR I'm not saying they shouldn't do it but I think it's a small part so you of the think story. they just want to be seen as being carbon neutral but underneath it all I think no, I, I, <laughs> there greenwash are, they, they call they that they are actually they? doing I think, I think Ross Bourne is genuine I don't, I don't oh, think yeah. he's yeah I don't think <laughs> he's they have also announced sustainability at their events so all their events will be sustainable in terms of paper plates things like that knives and forks which is pretty much it's starting to be everywhere now. Yeah, and, and look, and look, and, and but it's know, a good move. You have to do it because you know we all have to do what we can. And there's also the simple, in the end, the commercial imperative that if a high-profile sport like F1 doesn't actually take steps to reduce its carbon footprint, there comes a point in which that becomes quite toxic, and that is going to turn sponsors off, and that is very bad for the sport. And I think the people in the sport are smart enough to realise that. Mm -hmm. So yes, this isn't just. They talk about the green economy being an economic opportunity, don't they? That you can profit from being a specialist in decarbonisation. If you offer that service to people, or you're a firm who can replace another firm who are less carbon friendly, then you're going to get in the business. Any change presents opportunities. You know, yes. if, you, you know, if you talk about the way that power generation has to change, the way that electricity grids have to change, if you're in the business of building solar panels, yep. if you're in the business of making salt batteries for large scale grid storage, yeah, those are good businesses to be in. That's what they say. There's a lot of wastage with even people's homes, the way they use energy. So Certainly in so British homes. Yeah. Yeah. British homes are very, very poorly designed very poor insulation traditionally. If you compare the UK housing stock to Scandinavian housing, we are terrible at energy efficiency. We're getting better, but we know we're terrible. I'm just wondering how carbon neutral, carbon efficient, carbon wasteful, carbon positive on speed is. I'm just thinking about it now. We, we didn't use any knives and forks and we had the pizza earlier on that was served in cardboard. Zoggy, the only one who drove over. I was already here. Yeah, was Sarah say, came on public transport. I drove over here in a two and a half litre turbocharged yeah, sports car. Good on I you, could mate. have taken a bus. Well, I could have taken public transport, <laughs> um, but it would be a pain to get back late at night on public transport and it's so, it, it's might so, be up for a lift <laughs> hey you're on there you no go that's there you go. efficiency ride efficiency. sharing 100% yeah. increase sharing. That, that, has, that, yeah. that has that has entirely scrubbed my green conscience for the night <laughs> thank you sir uh, listen Rushbourne is zeitgeisting I think at the moment talking about decarbonisation because a similar thing is happening in the road car market 
here in the UK where this last week the government announced that they were going to bring forward the ban on sales of cars with internal combustion engines from 2040 to 20. 35 five years sooner yeah they're, yeah, they're, they're in, bringing it forward from yeah. 2040 2035 to 2035 so in 15 years from now you won't be able to buy a car that uses fossil fuels on board to motivate itself so they'll all be either battery electric or hydrogen fuel cell cars yeah hydrogen fuel cell or hydrogen internal combustion would work as well yeah you know, but no i think that's true that hydrogen mm-hmm. internal combustion would be allowed as well but yeah no petrol or diesel even yeah. as part of a hybrid yeah, yeah. Train. a ban on no. selling new petrol diesel or hybrid cars yeah, yeah, yeah. so to be brought forward from 2040 to 2035 yep under the new government plans which seems to be what I'm reading right now. Yeah, <laughs> and which, which I think my first reaction to that is I applaud the ambition of that. Yeah. This is Boris Johnson unveils new policy as part of a launch event for a United Nations climate summit in November. Yeah, for which he also sacked the UK's chairman for the event. So we now have no UK chair to lead this event. Um, And the couple of high-profile people he approached to take over the job turned him down. I mean, you can speculate what the reasons might be for that. (laughs) Working Um, with Boris Johnson? That would suit me. He might be the right to work with. Who knows? Well, he might be. I'm kind of sceptical, particularly given the very harsh words that the sacked chair had to say about Boris Johnson. Now, granted, people that have been sacked from jobs so don't always a, have the nicest things. Issue. Well, who knows? I thought it was very, very striking in the interview. Was it Claire O'Neill? Is that the minister who was I'm sacked? Not I, think sure that's, I think that's her name. Yeah. But I thought it was quite striking just how Vehement. scathing she was about Boris Johnson and his, first of all, his level of honesty and just... So how how much might one from, of... want from before you actually trust any commitment that he made? And also about what his level of understanding of the climate change issue was. I had an idea the other day that the only way that Britain was going to go with this Brexit mentality of taking back control. So I'm being Boris Johnson now as I wave my arms around. Was by setting standards that are greater than any standard set by the EU in anything, in manufacturing, in carbon emissions or anything like that, so that we are automatically in line with European standards without having to kowtow to their rules. If we set rules, so I'm doing that in inverted commas, but they kowtow, I don't believe that. So if we set rules that are higher, we are automatically within European acceptance and satisfying all those people who say, oh, we've got control back. You know, that, yeah, well, I, I, I think I, I, that's you know, a function mm. of what's happening here. No, no, not 2040, we'll do it 2035. Do you I, not agree? No, I don't agree. I think that's too simplistic. And I think that I dare say it's, it is true that in various areas, like, for example, a commitment to when you're going to achieve zero carbon in your transport sector, yep. zero carbon in your energy generation sector, or when you're going to stop selling internal combustion engine vehicles, that a more ambitious target means that you're automatically going to conform to whatever that European standard is. Yep. But I think the caveat, the reason why it's not quite as simple as that, is that in so many of these areas, and this is to do with a great many more things than carbon emissions or transport, but with a great many of these things that you might be setting standards on, the standards are just much more complicated and nuanced than a simple number that you're going to have more or, oh, more yeah. or less than. Yeah. You know, and also, that idea runs entirely against the grain of a lot of the direction of a lot of this take-back control tendency amongst Brexiteers and amongst people for whom that take-back control idea has been a driving force in this whole area, in that what they want to do is to have lower standards, fewer standards, in order to provide... Be more flexible, you know, more, more jobs. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Well, more, yeah, more flexible, because, you know, if you've got fewer rules, it superficially seems easier to attract all kinds of investment. But they're because, in doing that, they're cutting the nose to spite their face, of course, because they wouldn't be able to interface with European regulations, which is, as we still know, the biggest local market or the second biggest market in the world as far as I can say and that this whole plan of exceeding any set limits by the EU is a saving face thing for people who think like that yeah but we're getting off the beam of the vehicle sales things and and this idea of moving to electric and hydrogen cars only rather than internal combustion engine and it seems to me the, the obvious question here is just how much joined up thinking there is behind this and how much 
How other thoughts gone into this because at the same time that this has been announced, the government is still phasing out the subsidy for new electric cars. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it was four and a half thousand pounds. It's gone down to three and a half thousand, and they are still planning to phase out that subsidy. It doesn't look to me like phasing out the subsidy for new electric car sales is cogent helps you yeah, to yeah, move yeah. to a point where you stop selling internal combustion engine cars any sooner. Mind you, where's the, they where's do the have, bigger strategy? They have 15 years to put in super fast charging points every 100 yards on the motorway. And they better get a crack on because the people who they are providing yeah, charging points at the motorway at the moment, the electric highway from Ecotricity, are hopeless. And where's the investment to make that happen? It's not there. Here's and the they've also got to think about how they replace the hole in the budget that yeah, uh, is created from by removing you know, tax from petrol and sales. diesel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, The government gets a lot of money from fuel duty. Norway. That's true. When are Norway banning internal combustion engine cars? I think it's 2025, isn't it? Or 2030. It's even sooner. I think you're right. But they've already got much further than the UK has yep. in terms of their electric car sales. I mean, I think yes, about, indeed. Massively so. We're about between 1% and 2%, I think. And about 8% hybrid all UK car sales in Norway is... I don't know. I know it's a bigger number, but I don't know what the number is. Well, when I was in Norway two or three years ago, I was astonished at the number of electric cars, mainly Leaves and Teslas everywhere. Really? Everybody has an electric car charging point in their garage. And most people have two cars. They have an electric car and an internal combustion engine car, but they use the electric car most of the time. But Norway, of course, rather smartly invested all its money from the oil that it managed to dig up from the North Sea and has invested that in an infrastructure to support electric cars. You're right, it's important to bring the price down for electric cars to make it feasible, but we also need to make them viable by massively improving the support infrastructure in this country at the moment. I'm waving my fist because we've experienced it. We've driven from Land's End to John O'Groats. We did it, but we couldn't do it at pace because the infrastructure wasn't quite there. Still isn't there. On the price thing, I think I've seen some projections that within a couple of years, electric cars will be coming down to price parity with internal combustion engine cars. But even so, the infrastructure and what the broader strategy is, is mm. that's so? a big blank to be filled in. Here's another thought. New cars from 2035 can't be internal combustion engine cars. But if you buy a car in 2034 on December the 31st, mm. that car's going to have... you on sale. Well, it's going to... Yeah. Oh. That car's going to have 30 years' worth of use in it at least you well, know you can still buy second-hand cars if you want to drive around as a lot of us do in a stupid clunky old internal combustion car you can still do it yeah that doesn't go out of the window it's just that if you want to buy a new car then that's going to be an electric or a hydrogen car and regardless of whether you can buy cars on december the 31st 2034 government will start legislating against you using it there will be taxes on internal combustion engine cars that will suddenly appear I would imagine to force those cars out of the issue if they're going to meet these standards otherwise they may not, it won't I mean, happen quick enough yeah but there's a natural turnover in the stock of cars you know you know, older yep. cars just end up going off the road because they fall you know, apart they just they fall apart and yeah, well don't get, buy a Vauxhall then Zog <laughs> never have never so, will never will Captain's Log Stardate 2020-02.13 The Enterprise is en route to Tesla 3 to meet a pan-dimensional being known only as Musk. My hope is that... Computer, pause. Mr. Data, report. Captain, sensors are picking up unusual readings. Unusual? How so? It is difficult to explain, sir. Do try, Mr. Data. It's something the like of which we've never seen before. Is it something we should be concerned about? Yes, Captain. We should be very concerned. Why, Mr. Data? What is it? And where's it coming from? It appears to be emanating from Earth, sir. From Northamptonshire, a small facility in Brackley. Brackley? That's the home of the Mercedes-AMG Patronus Formula One team, isn't it? Yes, sir. It appears the team have acquired a new sponsor, sir. Ineos, 
and as a result, the team have put the colour red on their car. This is serious, Mr Data. Wait until Scuderia Ferrari hear this. It's something that could threaten the balance of the entire universe. Yes, sir. What do you suggest we do, Mr Data? The way I see it, sir, we have two options. Either we attempt to restore the universal balance by adding silver to the Ferrari F1 car, or nuke the entire Mercedes facility from orbit. Mr. Wolf? Yes, sir? Fire all phases. There's a lot of illness around at the moment. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm a bit bunged up. Nothing that serious. We've got Richard's daughter, who's a little poorly. But there is real concern for an illness, a virus, which is at epidemic proportions at the moment, contained largely to one territory, but has the potential of spreading further and wider and is already affecting various aspects of the world of cars whether it's car manufacturing or motorsport sarah you want to do the motorsport thing you talk about the chinese grand prix and where we're at with it i'm talking about the coronavirus of course yeah the coronavirus was a very serious thing in china do you actually realize how it started we don't know well my understanding is we don't know for sure how the coronavirus got from whatever its original animal host was to humans, but it probably went through the pangolin. Bats are implicated, Mm. and possibly a live seafood market was implicated in some early transmissions of the virus, but we don't know, I think. Well, it's now a world health crisis. Back to the Formula One, because on the 19th of April, the Shanghai Grand Prix is scheduled to happen, but with the disease having killed more than 560 people, the race officially. Officially, yep, officially, probably more than that by now. As of Wednesday, the 12th of February, the Chinese Grand Prix has been postponed. All public events in March in China have all been cancelled. Yeah, yeah. Unless the epidemic takes a fairly dramatic turn for the better, it looks like. Decline. Uh, yeah, it's, mm. it's on the decline rather than carries on. Spreading and getting worse. It's tricky for Formula One. They've talked about rescheduling the dates, and two other dates have already been proposed to have the Chinese Grand Prix and later in the season. And, yeah, and, and the team said, no, I can't yeah. do that, because one would interfere with the length of the three-week August break, knocking it down to two weeks. And to be fair, with, is it 21 races this season? 22 Grand Prix this season. Is it 22? Because we've got Vietnam and Mm. we've got the Netherlands as well. Mm. Don't call it Holland. It is in Holland, but it's the Netherlands Grand Prix. If they do reschedule and put the Chinese Grand Prix to later in the year, it means it will be a very tight schedule for the last 14 races. They'll almost have back-to-back weekends, which will be quite draining, you'd think. Oh, it's hard work. Those guys work exceptionally hard and they're away from their families a very long time and they get reasonably well paid, but really you'd have to be paid a huge amount to compensate for missing your four-year-old daughter's birthday for the fourth year running, which is the sort of thing that these guys do, isn't it? On the other hand, I'm pretty sure that if the Chinese authorities can get something back on the calendar for later in the year, I'm sure they're going to try very hard to do that because they can afford to spend the money on it and they really appreciate the global coverage, the PR value of it. That's a good point. They're going to make it happen if they can. It would be a real marker for the Chinese government to be able to say... No, we are clear of it now. Look, we can hold an international motor race. That's the best possible way of advertising that China is open for business. Mm. That really is, isn't it? And I'm wondering what sort of risks they would be prepared to take to be able to do that, hope, you know what I mean? You'd hope very, very few risks you would at all. Hope, you know, yeah. We're talking about, you know, we just don't know enough about it yet. Even on the basis of, we talk about five to 600 people killed so far. 560. 560. And that's just in uh, China. Officially. It is quite conceivable that the official figures are quite a way short of the real numbers. There are some quite credible suggestions that they're... Well, I mean, mean, quite apart from the fact that, you know, it takes a while for things to be reported, it is quite possible that the inclination of the 
Chinese government to be over-controlling with information and to manage information in such a way as to reassure a population rather than to cause panic. Mm. You'd think the that panic may... would be slightly out, the panic would be there. Yeah, but, but, but my point is that it's quite conceivable that the actual figures are... You know, up. Considerably, yeah, yeah, yeah. The figures are much bigger than that. We just don't know enough about this disease yet and how it's going to progress to make any confident statements about how big a deal it's going to be worldwide, whether it turns from they're an epidemic on, into a pandemic. Well, they're working on a vaccine and things like that, aren't they? Centres in several parts of the world, in China and in the UK, are working on vaccines. They've got the genetic makeup of the virus that is enabling groups to start working on vaccines and on treatments. But as I understand it, we don't know how quickly and how well those efforts are going to progress. We're working on it. Don't know how soon that's going to turn up Some good results, though. Intriguing that it's also going to affect car manufacturing as well as motor racing. It's already affecting... Well, it has. There are factories closing in China and factories closing in South Korea. Hyundai's factory in South Korea, which is the biggest auto manufacturing facility in the world, I believe, has been shut down, largely because of supply difficulties from suppliers in China. And factories in China both are supplying components to other manufacturers and car factories within China. I believe there are a lot in Wuhan province Mm. have shut down so it's impacting the auto industry in a significant way already and yeah that might get worse the human cost of this is obviously uh, tragic is obviously yeah tragic Mm. terrible it seems a bit sort of cheap to talk about the economic side of it as well but it is going to have an economic impact on the car industry clearly Mm. yeah nothing happens in isolation does it this is always the truth i'm also slightly concerned for the vietnamese grand prix which debuts this year i think that potentially is in jeopardy and if it does go pandemic if it breaks out really internationally, globally, and there are hints of it breaking out here and there, any race, including Singapore, not just in Asia, but races in Europe, could be in jeopardy. Control of the movement of people will have to happen, and that could prevent European races happening as well. We'll see. We live in I mean, connected times. Yeah, That's it, the message here. It does look it? as if the restrictions that have already been put in place mm. around travel to and from the affected regions of China have been pretty effective in limiting the spread beyond China. There have been, what, four confirmed cases in the UK so far? Yeah. As we, um, the day that we're recording this, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think there have been about the same number in, in the USA. So you Australia's know, got a few as well. Yeah, well, and of course, Australia is geographically that much closer. Closer. And I I I don't know what the numbers are, but I would imagine that ordinarily there's a greater volume of passenger travel between Australia and China than China and the UK, certainly. Last word on this. In some ways, you could argue that China is the best territory for this outbreak to have happened because with its sort of totalitarian government regime they can put controls in place where they can lock down cities isolate people in ways that you could not do in more liberal european or north american cities you know at least china can stomp on this if you can say you could argue that and Mm. i would agree that the chinese authorities seem to have taken quite effective action within china but you could also suggest that they're being so controlling mm-hmm. of the spread of information within their society uh-huh. yeah. has been an entirely negative thing in this yeah, respect yeah, yeah, because yeah. their first reaction to a doctor publicising yeah, the yeah. incidence of a new disease yeah. was to send the police round, yeah. crack down on him and make him sign a document saying that he wasn't going to spread any more yeah. disinformation and spread any more panic. That's a bad thing. That's a dreadful thing. Yeah, yeah. it is. And he died recently as he a did, result yeah. of yeah, that, so that the, virus. The death toll at the moment is surpassing SARS, you know, the SARS. Yeah, 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 I remember that. So, mm. Well, SARS was a much riskier, you had a higher... High mortality. Mortality yeah, rate. It appears uh, so far that both SARS and MERS have a higher mortality rate yeah. than it appears yeah. that the coronavirus has. Yeah. But again, I, the, it seems in early China days. Too. I don't think there should be any suggestion that China is kind of reckless in the way that it deals with managing disease or anything. They're just, China is such a populous country. There are just yes. so many people there and there's just so much going on in China that when you've got that many people with those population densities and the kind of intersection of rural and 
urban mm-hmm. economies, mm-hmm. those are conditions that are more likely to lead to diseases, jumping species into humans. I would imagine no one's going to buy an MG in Britain for the next five years just in case it's got the coronavirus in the seats. You know what I mean? That's the sort of thinking. Hey, listen, let's leap on to happier stuff because that was pretty miserable, if I'm honest. <laughs> Prime Minister, you recently announced an ambitious plan to build a road bridge between the west coast of Scotland and Northern Ireland. Will this be a road bridge for cars? Uh, yes, um, just like our wonderful French neighbours call Le Tunnel sous la Manche. Uh, you mean the Euro Tunnel? Uh, yes, of course, but that's a tunnel. Uh, yes, um, uh, and this will be uh, a sort of elevated tunnel above the water, in essence, uh, a bridge. And will the cars travelling on it be on the back of a train? No, 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 no not at all. You will be uh, free to drive your car yourself. However, we predict that by the time the bridge is built, the, uh, the vast majority of cars will have autonomous capability and will, will therefore drive themselves. But, Prime Minister, there have been several instances in the United States recently where cars running on autopilot have been involved in serious accidents. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, uh, we hope that uh, when the driver, or perhaps in this case the passenger in the driving seat, notices uh, that there might be an accident looming, he, or, or she, of course, switches off the autopilot and takes back control, so to speak. Ah! <laughs> You said that deliberately, Prime Minister, didn't you? I did, yes. Sorry. And how will you overcome the challenge that the Irish Sea is a thousand feet deep? It is? I mean, yes, it is. It is. So what will you do about that? Well, let's not get bogged down in trivial details like that. Or the fact that there are thousands of unexploded bombs exactly in that spot where you plan to build the bridge. Bombs dumped there after the Second World War. There are. I mean, yes, there are. Yes. You haven't really thought this through at all, have you? We will give this exactly the same amount of detailed planning that went into our preparations for Brexit. And how much exactly is that? Absolutely none. Ha! <laughs> We're just making it up as we go along. Um, did I say anything out loud just then? Yes, Prime Minister, you spoke the truth. For the first time, probably. Ah, good. Now, can I go home then? Nanny said I could have a chucky egg for tea. Mmm, yum, yum, yum. A few weeks ago, Zog went to see an exhibition at a museum in London about cars. And curiously, it was at the Victoria and Albert Museum, not where you'd expect to find an exhibition about cars. And while Zog was there, he conducted a short interview with Brendan Cormier, one of the curators of the exhibition and the senior curator in the V&A's design, architecture and digital department. Brandon, first of all, nice to see you uh, yes. dressed yeah. as if you are about to participate in a pit stop, but <laughs> maybe 1930s yeah. motor race, perhaps, blue overalls. You're looking the part of a yeah. curator of a motoring exhibition. <laughs> Could you just describe the exhibition that you and your colleagues have created here at the V&A? It's a look back at 130 years of automotive history, not looking at the design of the car per se, but looking at the car as a designed object, and through that lens, understanding the impact design can have when design reaches the scale of kind of global ubiquity that the car has done in 100 years. And in doing that, you're covering, I see, technological, industrial aspects, industrialization, yeah. the rise of the assembly line and yeah. how that has then impacted other industries, but also fashion as well and yeah. other areas of culture. Yeah, we all know that the automobile has had impact but to trace um, in as many kind of unique and surprising ways where the automobile has touched different aspects of popular culture, industry, economy, and so on and so forth. Just to outline kind of the sheer scale and diversity of impact that the automobiles had. One thing that's striking, having yeah. moved through the exhibition, is that there's kind of there's quite a hard cut-off, in a sense. In that yeah. This is very definitely an exhibition of 20th century yeah. motoring, um, and, and, and you're not even for, for well, example, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was going to say there aren't even any yeah. cars 
on display here from this century. Yeah. So t- tell us about that decision to, talk, to look at yeah, the yeah. past rather than the future. Well, we wanted to, I think, play to the strengths of the museum, which is to take a credit critical historical look at the past looking at the future we've done future exhibitions before but so tricky about them and especially in this field of mobility is that it's such a fast-moving scene it takes us two years to produce an exhibition by the time the exhibition opens a lot of the things might already be redundant and one example of that already is the one present future concept car we have in the show which is the pop-up is already a cancelled project so to speak um, which we didn't know when we first agreed to have it in the show but that is the reality of these kind of speculative spaces is that that it's very hard to make predictions about the future very hard to make predictions about the future yeah i mean to get back to your comment about why no 21st century vehicles there were a few on our long list that of course i think are interesting stories the toyota prius is a really interesting story tesla as well this is a very boring answer, but people are going to pay a ticket price to come in to see this, and we want them to see cars that they might not be able to see on the road today. And so if you can get into a, an Uber and it's Toyota Prius, uh, you might feel a little ripped off if you came down here to see another one. Having put this all together, yeah. if you were to suddenly retire from your career yeah. tomorrow in the V&A, offers you any of the vehicles in this <laughs> exhibition to take away tomorrow yeah. as your retirement present. Well, that's what, would you so, do, so what would you be driving out the curatorial team, we have been joking that all these cars are up for grabs after the show is done, so who wants what? Yeah. And you so have we've all staked out claims, and I've staked out the, the T77, the Tatra, so I just think it's a stunning and bizarre design. But, uh, it's a wonderful bit of sort of 20th century futurism, isn't exactly, it? It's that yeah, sort yeah. of mid-century looking to the future yeah. with what, optimism. What car would you take? Actually, I'd probably take the one that's next to it, the Delahaye. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, you know, I love an open-top sports car. Yes. Got to be the Delahaye. I'm sure it's fun to ride as well. I, yeah. <laughs> Maybe one day I'll find it. <laughs> Brendan, thanks very much, and congratulations on putting together a thanks great Thanks a lot. And if I had a choice of taking a car away from that exhibition, I saw on the website that they've got a model of the 1958 Ford Nucleon, that nuclear-powered car that was envisaged as a concept by Ford in the 50s. Love that car. Always loved that car. Would love to go to that exhibition and see that car. You enjoy the exhibitions, though? Yeah, yeah. No, I highly recommend it for any petrol head, any car or not. Actually, the other thing that I would have taken away from the exhibition is there's a beautiful model of the Fiat factory in Turin, made famous With a test track the on the roof. Job. That's the one, yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the beautiful things to me about going to a museum and seeing a good exhibition of the museum, it's the physical stuff. You know, even though I've worked on digital museum content, there's something very special about the artefacts and the objects that you can get close to in an exhibition in the museum. And I love that model, just beautiful. And that exhibition, which is actually called Cars Accelerating the Modern World, is on now until Sunday, the 19th of April, 2020. Go down and see it. Actually, I'm going to go and see that. Something to look forward to. You, you and, and you, Sarah, we need I'd to... I'd actually dis- really love to see that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we could go together, maybe. Perfect. We'll do that. And in the meantime, we need to talk about getting you some walking boots for Le Mans, because you'll need those, right? And if you want to come to Le Mans, don't forget, go to our website, garethjones.tv forward slash Le Mans 2020. Find out all about Team Langoustine, and you can come and basically camp with us at Le Mans. (laughs) Right, that's it from Sarah. Goodbye. That's it from Zog. Goodbye. And that's almost it from me. We're going to leave you with a tune. And you know how... On Gareth Jones on Speed, I have a tendency to do songs from artists from a long time ago. Not on this occasion. Ladies and gentlemen, I present you a song in the style of a contemporary act for the first time in ages. This is my interpretation of what idols would do if they wrote a song about cars. See ya! Do all
email. See pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed! 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 Speed!